Welcome to another deep dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday's sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. Welcome to our Deep Dive podcast. This one is on Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. The original sermon was called Jesus, Power, and the Powers. So I'd like to take some time and dig a little bit deeper into some of the concepts, the ideas, uh, some practical thoughts behind what we talked about that Sunday. So in this particular sermon, we talked about Jesus's relationship to power. And one of the things I pointed out in that sermon is that the cross is a weird way to win the war. It's a, it's an upside down way to win a war. And so Jesus did not take up the sword and try to take over the Roman empire. He gave up his life. And in doing so, that's how he won the war against the powers by giving up his life. And of course, God was faithful to raise him from the dead and bring him to his right hand, as this passage talks about specifically. So this is the way that we should be thinking about power as Christians. You know, we think about power in an upside down way. We turn the other cheek. We serve one another in love. We look at power in an upside down kind of way, a kingdom kind of way. The other thing we talked about uh, during the sermon was the powers, plural, And as Tim Mackey talks about it in his class on Ephesians on the Bible Project website, um, the powers are things that um, can influence us or try to influence us. Uh, They can be good. They can be bad. They can be neutral. uh, They can be persons um, like, like Caesars and presidents and clerks and police officers and pastors, priests, um, They can be laws, they can be uh, larger systems like our economic system or political systems, voting systems. Um, They can be things that are visible, things that are invisible. So we talked a lot about uh, different examples of powers on on this particular Sunday. We talked about things like traffic laws and economic systems and the hosts of heaven like the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, We talked a little bit about angels and demons. So all these things are powers. So that's a little bit about what we talked about with power and powers and how Jesus has been exalted above all of the powers. Um, But I want to dig deeper into this passage because there were a lot of things that I wanted to say or that I thought would would be helpful to say, but you just don't have time to say everything that you uh, think about on Sunday. And so let's start by reading the whole prayer, the prayer for an apocalypse in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 15 to 23, and I'll be reading from the ESV and substituting y'alls in for you like we have been this whole series. For this reason, because I have heard of y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and y'all's love toward all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give y'all the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of y'all's hearts enlightened, that y'all may know what is the hope to which he has called y'all, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As our brother John Ely showed in a sermon from the week before the sermon that I'm talking about, this is a prayer for an apocalypse. Paul really wanted these Ephesian Christians to experience Jesus. He wanted them to uh, encounter Jesus in a way that would change the reality as it had changed Paul on Paul's on the road to Damascus. So with this in mind, with this as a backdrop, with, with my sermon uh, from this particular week in the backdrop, let's go back through uh, verses 20 to, through 23. And I'm just going to read basically one or two verses at a time and then give some additional background information for each of them. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, we see, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this is talking about the power that God demonstrated in raising Christ and seating him at his right hand. Now I mentioned, I believe on Sunday, that this is an allusion to Psalm 110 verse 1. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. I don't remember if I said it or not, but I'm going to read Psalm 110, verse 1. This is where the language of seating at the right hand comes from. This is very common New Testament language used of Christ. Uh, comes from Psalm 110, 1, which says, A Psalm of David, the Lord, and that's in all caps, so we read that as Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, depending on how you count allusions and quotations, how you categorize things, this is the most frequently cited Old Testament passage by New Testament writers. So you could conceive of this as like perhaps one of the most important Old Testament passages to understand who Jesus is and what this exaltation means. So we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about this really important text, Psalm 110.1. Well, the first thing we notice is that we have two figures here. We have David who's talking about two figures here. The first is Lord in all capitals, L-O-R-D, all caps, which is the uh, key for us to know that the Hebrew word Yahweh or Yahovah, uh, those those are the two common pronunciations, or Jehovah is another anglicized version of that pronunciation. Anyway, however you want to say it, it's the word for the personal name of God, Yahweh. So you have God or Yahweh, and then you have someone, a second Lord. 
second Lord. David calls him Lord. So this is David's Lord. It's not in all caps, so we know it's not Yahweh. And it turns out that the Hebrew word here is Adonai. And Adonai is used many times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. And it always is a lesser being. The word is always used of a lesser being. It's not used of God. Uh, a similar word is used of God, Adonai. And some scholars have conflated the two here and said that this second Lord is Adonai, but that's not the case. It's Adonai. And so uh, the picture we have here is Yahweh, Almighty God, who everywhere else in the Bible is called the Father. Yahweh is inviting someone that David is calling Lord, Adonai, to his right hand. And we find out in the New Testament, every, basically every single time it's quoted, if not every single time, I don't remember every single occurrence off the top of my head right at the moment, but, but basically every single time it's cited as Jesus. Jesus is this king, very specifically named as this Lord who is being named here as um, the one who gets exalted to Yahweh's right hand in Psalm 110.1. So, Jesus, who is the future king of the line of David, uh, he is David's Lord. Um, he gets invited by Yahweh to sit at Yahweh's right hand. And so we can see here that Psalm 1101 does a remarkable job of distinguishing Jesus as the Messiah and Lord, very exalted status, but still subordinate from Yahweh, his God and our God. I wanted to read a quote from Clinton Arnold's uh, Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary, the ZIBBC. We've been using uh, Clinton Arnold's ZIBBC commentary quite a bit in our sermon series. I thought this was a good quote from him on Psalm 110 related to Ephesians 1.20. He said, The setting of Psalm 110 was the enthronement of a king. The right hand of God occurs frequently in the Old Testament as a way of describing a position of power. See Exodus 15.6. And favor, Psalm 80, 17. The enthronement of Christ establishes his identity as the messianic king and highlights his sovereignty over all of creation. The enemies that this victorious king has subjugated are not the Romans or any other physical army, but the spiritual forces of evil. End quote. So, um, that's a little bit about Psalm 110 and about enthronement language and exaltation language in Ephesians 120. Now, another point that we can make from verse 20 is that Christ's resurrection is assurance for us that we will be resurrected as well. Uh, this is what Lynn Kohick, another old friend of ours, we've been reading her commentary, the New International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, we've been reading from her commentary quite a bit during this series in Ephesians as well. And this is what she says about Ephesians 1.20. She says, quote, Christ's resurrection gives believers assurance that their calling and inheritance is secure. Paul speaks similarly to the Corinthians that Christ's resurrection confirms their own future resurrection. Then she cites 1 Corinthians 15.14 through 23. And that's the end of the quote. So I thought it would be helpful to read 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 23, just to get some of Paul's logic in another location in the New Testament where he talks about the same concept of 
how Christ's resurrection can be assurance for us that we too will be resurrected. And, you know, remember that uh, in the Old Testament, the people of faith throughout um, Jewish history, you know, they, those that believed in resurrection specifically, uh, would have had to hope in a resurrection in which no one had been resurrected before. So we get the additional honor and benefit of seeing in some sense, I'm using seeing in air quotes so you can't see me, uh, seeing Christ as resurrected gives us so much more uh, power and ability to believe in the resurrection because we, we believe that Christ was resurrected. And that's what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read that starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So here again, we see that Christ's resurrection is an important piece of us knowing and having confidence um, that we will be resurrected as well. Let's read now Ephesians 1.21. Let's go to our next verse here in Ephesians 1. So where was he exalted? At the right hand of God. Far above, this is verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are the powers, remember. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Um, in the sermon on Sunday, we spent a great deal of time talking about the powers. Uh, we talked about, and we talked about that at the beginning of this uh, deep dive as well. All the different ways we can understand the powers. And there's a lot that could be said about that. But I also want to quote Lynn Kohick here. She had an excellent observation that I wanted to bring in this deep dive. And that is, here's her quote. Quote, are these powers human agents or institutions? Or is Paul referencing spiritual forces in this verse? Perhaps we need to examine the premise of these questions, which is that we have two spheres of reality, the natural and the supernatural world. Such a bifurcation is foreign to the ancient world's cosmology. Instead, unseen forces were believed to impact everyday life, end quote. So what Lynn Kohick is saying here is, is that in the ancient world, they understood that the natural world and the supernatural world overlapped and that natural things that we would say only have natural interpretations, they were comfortable in the ancient world having supernatural interpretations of causes and effects and things like that. And what she's pointing out is that when we talk about a bad law, are we talking about something that exists in the natural world? Or are we talking about something that has a spiritual force behind it? Or is it a combination of the two? 
And we tend to see things as either or, either natural or supernatural, but the ancients viewed those two spheres as overlapping. And so I, I just want to point out that just because we have a different perspective than ancient peoples, that doesn't make us smarter than them. It doesn't make them backward and us modern people so enlightened. It just means that we view things differently. And especially when we're trying to understand a book that was, or really a letter that was written uh, 2,000 years ago, it's incumbent upon us. It's really important for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people put ourselves in their worldview as much as possible. And when they were thinking about the powers, they were thinking about things that were visible and invisible, that were um, political and economic and also mystical. You know, these things are all applicable. These words are all applicable. They, um, it, it meant a lot of different things to them. Adding to this a little bit, I mentioned a little bit about the phrase above, you know, he's, Jesus is above every name that is named. Um, and I wanted to read a quote here from Clinton Arnold on that. And this is a long quote, so buckle up. <laughs> All right, this is what he says about Ephesians 1.21. Every title that can be given, this phrase, literally every name that is named, is loaded with significance for people who have been converted out of a background of participation in magical practices. Discerning and using the names of spirit powers was central to the use of magic. Note the calling of names in lines from three magical papyri. This is the first one. I conjure you by the great names. Here's the second one. You, these holy names and these powers, confirm and carry out this perfect enchantment. Then here's the third one. A flactory, a bodyguard against demons, against phantasm, against every sickness and suffering, to be written on a leaf of gold or silver or tin or hieratic papyrus. When worn, it works mightily, for it is the name of power of the great God and his seal. And it is as follows. And then 14 magical names are given. These are the names. Arnold goes on. Paul wants to assure these new believers that they need not concern themselves with discerning the names of spirit entities or with worrying about some being that may rival Christ in power and authority. There is no conceivable spiritual force outside of the dominion of Christ. The name of Jesus alone, not his name in addition to others, is sufficient for them. And then Arnold keeps going. There is a long tradition of six magical names that was associated with Ephesus. Askion, Kataskion, Lix, Tetrax, Damamensius, and Isia, Known as the Ephesian letters, Ephesia Grammata, these were the names of six powerful beings who could be called upon for assistance and protection. Plutarch says that the Magi instructed people who were possessed by evil spirits to repeat to themselves the magic words in order to drive the demons out. Even athletes wore the Ephesian letters to ensure success. End quote. So again, we can see that in magical practices, names were a big deal. And again, the point that I made on Sunday's sermon was Jesus is above every name that is named. And we know that Ephesus was a city that was steeped in magic. 
was steeped in the occult, uh, steeped in pagan worship practices, especially the worship of Artemis or Diana. But uh, there were these other things going on as well. And so that's helpful to know uh, when you're reading the book of Ephesians that this idea of a name having power over you or uh, invoking different demons or spiritual beings in your life to help you in one way or another Uh, This is all important backdrop information for uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Well, let's keep reading. We'll read our last two verses together, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Verse 22, that language about placing all things under his feet, is that an allusion to another psalm. Uh, this time it's Psalm 8, verse 6. Um, that psalm is also cited in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, uh, which we read in the sermon. But I want to go back to the original context of Psalm 8 and read Psalm 8, verses 1 to 6 together. And I think we're going to see something very similar to what we saw um, in, in Psalm 110. So let's read Psalm 8, verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. There's that language at the very end uh, that gets pulled into Ephesians chapter 1. So this psalm, again, distinguishes between the Lord, Yahweh, who's named in verse 1, and then an exalted human being. Uh, You have humans named in the rest of this passage. Um, And then, uh, you know, it's sort of vague here in Psalms if it's a group of people that get exalted uh, or if it's one person that gets exalted. And then, of course, in Ephesians chapter 1, we find that it is one person that gets exalted, and that is Jesus, is one human being. And so we have an exalted man separate from Yahweh. Now this verse is also quoted, this section is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. So I wanted to read these verses for you as well. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, I should have pointed this out earlier, but there is scholarly disagreement on that phrase, little lower than the angels is how it's Um, done here because this is quoting the Septuagint in Hebrews chapter 2. 
in, in the ESV, verse 5, Psalm 8, 5, says a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, some people think it should be translated a little lower than God. Um, so it's a little ambiguous here how that should be translated. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 2, the point that's being made here is, is that uh, man is pictured as possibly lower than the angels, depending, on, again, on your view of, of verse 5 in the original context in Psalm 8. But he's viewed as lower than the angels, but then Jesus gets exalted above all the angels. And uh, so I think that shows a, a change. The, the idea that the book of Hebrews is trying to show is that there is a change in uh, his exaltation. What what he where he was lower than the angels now he's greater than the angels, um, and so we have to ask ourselves again who did this? Well, his father did this. God did this. Uh, so again, we can see key Old Testament threads being pulled through and applied to Jesus in the New Testament, and both of these were human. Fully human people in the Old Testament or categories of, of people in the Old Testament that get applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Now I want to take some time and talk about the word head. And as I mentioned on Sunday, the term head is a difficult one. In modern times, we're tempted to interpret the word head in sort of a medical way or as a medical description. And we also tend to substitute brain for head. I want to read a little bit from uh, the word biblical commentary on Ephesians that was written by Andrew Lincoln. Because I think it gives us some background here on the problem. Here's the quote. It's a long quote. Here it is. Quote, some have been tempted to see them simply as part of one physiological model. He's talking about the words head and body in which the head contains the brain which directs the nervous system of the rest of the body and on which the body is dependent. Fidale holds that this is to be guilty of a serious anachronism, for this metaphor, which is natural to us, would be unintelligible to St. Paul or his readers, who had no idea of the real function of the central nervous system. Barth is less inclined to dismiss the physiological model and shows from his investigation of the neurological knowledge of the time that Hippocrates, circa 460 to 380 BCE, and Galen, circa 130 to 200 CE, did see the brain as the strongest force in a person, ruling the nerves and coordinating what went on in the body. However, another strand in Greek thought, represented by Aristotle and the Stoics, ascribed priority to the heart. And this, of course, was the view found in Old Testament and Jewish thinking where the heart was the center of the personality and its reason and will. In comparison to the terminology of Hippocrates and Galen, Colossians and Ephesians speak of the head and the body, not the brain and the nerves, and there are no clear parallels in Hippocrates or Galen to the notion of the body's growth from the head, like in Colossians 2.19 or Ephesians 4.15 and 16. Although he to toys with it as an explanation, Barth eventually has to concede that the physiology of Paul's time cannot be considered the key to the head-body imagery in, of this letter, end quote. So here again, a long quote from Andrew Lincoln where he demonstrates that while there was, and scholars have pointed this out, that there was in the ancient world some idea 
of the brain in Hippocrates and Galen that it is unlikely that that's what Paul is thinking of when he uses the head-body analogy. And again, when you think about how the word head is used elsewhere in the New Testament, when you think about how um, the heart is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the innermost part of a human being, uh, the place where our life emanates from, as in the book of Proverbs, I think you can see the point that Lincoln is making, which is that it's best to not understand the head here as a figure for brain and to picture Christ's main function here in this particular passage in Ephesians 1 as a signal emitter to the rest of the body, controlling, as it were, the rest of the body, that that is not the main idea that we get from the word head here. So, if it doesn't mean head or brain in that sense, in the physical, physiological sense, what does it mean? Well, um, I've got some notes here from Lynn Kohick's New International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, which we have been using extensively in our Ephesians series. And she has a whole section on the possibilities for the word head. And she does include uh, Barth and the physiological concept uh, as well, but we're going to skip that since Lincoln covered that pretty extensively. So one option that comes up, and it was uh, forwarded by our old friend Gordon Fee, uh, who helped us with the Corinthians seminar, uh, they take the word head to primarily be a figure for the word source. So head, in other words, means source uh, or, or something like that. And in the context, head would mean something like a source of well-being, as Kohik puts it. And she cites an example from the Roman world when the uh, orator and uh, philosopher Seneca wrote to Nero and said that Nero, as emperor and head, should, quote, be that which brings health to his empire, end quote. So the idea here would be, uh, the head is the source, the source of life, the source of well-being, the, the source of, um, of everything, essentially, the source of all good things. So that is one option. Head could be a figure for source. Another option is that head does include the idea of leadership or authority. Like we would think of the head of a company or the head of a household um, it's a very similar usage to those things. Uh, now, one scholar who spent a lot of time um, analyzing this idea of source versus the idea of authority is Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, among other things, is known for his uh, systematic theology. And Kohik says uh, this about this perspective, quote, One could find both ideas in the description of the, in the, of the patriarch of the family as head, for the father was both the literal biological source for his children and the decision maker on their behalf, end quote. So here even we see the ideas of source and leadership or authority could even go hand in hand. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, although some scholars have sort of pitted them against each other, at least as a primary way of viewing this word here in Ephesians 1. But so we have the idea of source bringing life. We have the idea of leadership or authority 
as in the head or patriarch of a family or the head, like I said, of a company. Another option is um, the idea that head could be used as a, a figure of speech called synecdoche, where a part represents the whole. In modern times, um, a modern scholar named Anthony Thiselton has presented this kind of a view. So in this view, Jesus as head would just be the representative part of the whole body. And this is similar to another perspective on the idea of a head. In the ancient world, the head was often one of the only things that was uncovered on a person. And so the physical, your physical head, especially I'm thinking your face, honestly, at this point, um, is the most prominent and obvious thing to observe on a body. On, you know, if your whole body is covered with robes and so on, then the only thing that a person could see would be your face or your head. And so the idea here is, is that uh, Jesus as the head is the representative human being and that he uh, is the prominent one, the one that people see. Uh, the one that's obvious or should be obvious. And I think that there is some, some cool things to consider here as well in terms of the head being the prominent or the preeminent one. I think that might make pretty good sense of the Colossians passage, Colossians 1, where he is called the head as well. So, you know, there's, there's some interesting things here with that option. There's another possibility uh, forwarded by... Uh, Cynthia Westfall, and that's the idea that the head is mostly used in the context of ancestry. So again, like the father of the family is the head. He is therefore the face of the family. And as Kohik explains, quote, the wife in the ancient world depended on her husband for food and shelter as the body depends on the head for its life, end quote. So again, this one is similar to the idea of source. Um, it's also similar uh, in some respects to the idea of leadership or authority, although I think Westfall would be careful to delineate between those two, especially as it relates to leadership or authority, as her concern is um, in the context of the role of women in the church and women in marriage and striking a biblical balance on those things. So I think she'd be careful to to uh, delineate between something like source or ancestry as opposed to an idea of leadership or authority. But again, I think that these ideas can blend together on some level. It's just a question of what priority we give them. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive ideas. They could all sort of uh, roll together with, with multiple levels of meaning holding true. So what do we do with all these options? Um, many of which are very similar or could be used together. Uh, well, at the end of the day, I'm going to leave it to you, dear listener, to make a decision. Now, I, I will point this out that I do tend to believe that there is some level of authority meant in the word head. Uh, even if we give the life-giving and prominence shades of meaning uh, some merit as well, which I think they definitely do have merit. Um, and the ancestry one by Westfall, I think, has merit. Uh, you know, all these views, I think, have some, some merit and may add some flavor or shades of meaning to the overall, um, to the overall picture of what it, what it means to be the head. But 
Uh, I do think that there is some level of authority meant here, and I, I get that from 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about uh, God being the head of Christ. C certainly God gave Christ life. Certainly God is the father of Jesus, and so therefore there, the ancestry explanation uh, makes sense there as well. But as we find elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, there is an authority differential between God and between his son Jesus, as Jesus is said to be in subjection to his father in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28. And so just in the context of 1 Corinthians alone, we find that head has some flavor of authority in it, uh, some flavor of authority in it. And again, it may not be... Um, the primary thing that we think about in every single context where we see the word head, but I think it does it does land there in the biblical usage. And so I, I just sort of wanted to give that um, that small little caveat there that you know I think I think there's a lot of things to sort out here, but I do think that authority is a piece of this. I wanted to close this section by quoting Lincoln again, his word biblical commentary. On Ephesians, I think he did a pretty good job of summing the issue up. So I wanted to quote him here before we move on uh, to the next concept. Quote, To return to Ephesians 1.22b, kephale is used here to denote Christ's position of rule and authority over all things. And as the one given to the church, the head is an entity distinct from the body. In the juxtaposition of cosmic and ecclesiological perspectives found in this clause, the writer has taken a confessional formulation about Christ's cosmic lordship and subordinated it to his interest in the church's welfare. All the supremacy and power God has given to Christ, he has given to be used on behalf of the church. In this way, the church is seen to have a special role in God's purposes for the cosmos. End quote. So again, um, you know, Lincoln sees here kephale, the word kephale, head, as um, noting Christ's position of rule and authority over everything. And that's what he means by cosmic. He means, you know, Jesus is elevated above all the powers. And that includes uh, the body of Christ. And that includes um, all the different things that we talked about on Sunday as well, the good and the bad and the in-between. So, here we have, again, a view that, that kafale or head, on some level, means authority. And so with that, we can end our time on head. The final thing I wanted to comment on uh, to close out this deep dive is this idea from verse 22 of uh, putting all things under. Um, that comes from the Greek verb hupotasso. And... Uh, you know, other in other places it can be translated like to be put in submission or to submit to or be subject to. Uh, these are all different ways of translating this uh, this verb. And as you can understand, based on those possible translations, you can understand that this has been a bit of a controversial word in modern times because the idea of submission can be charged. Um, but I don't think it has to be. I don't think it has to be. Uh, Lynn Kohick is helpful here again, her uh, New International Commentary on the New Testament. This is what she says about hupotasso. Quote, the verb placed under hupotasso can be translated to be subject or to submit. 
See Ephesians 5, 21, 22, implied, and 24. The verb stem, stem carries the sense of to arrange a point. See Romans 13, 1. Paul adds the prefix hupo, which means under, and we have the meaning to be ordered under and thus to be subordinate and to submit. The negative tone these verbs carry in today's individualistic culture often prevents readers from appreciating the positive nuance they could hold for ancient listeners. They need not imply subjugation, but rather ordered stability. In the early Roman imperial period, the fragile veneer of civilized conduct threatened to fracture, with the resulting lawlessness overwhelming especially the poor. Law and order were maintained through a rigorous insistence on social hierarchy to keep chaos at bay. In the New Testament, the verb is used with reference to Psalm 8.6, as we find here. See also 1 Corinthians 15, 25-27, Philippians 3.21, Hebrews 2.7 and 8, 1 Peter 3.22. In this psalm, God is praised for his creation and his decision to give humanity dominion over it, such that everything is submitted under their feet. The psalmist celebrates God's ordering of the universe, including the celestial realm and the earthly domain. In Ephesians 1.21, the verb likely implies a victory over all things, earthly and heavenly, end quote. So what Lynn Kohik is saying here is that because we live in such a individualistic society, we tend to view submission as... Um, exerting power over one another or being subjugated uh, as a loss of freedom. Uh, you know, these are all things that we could associate with this idea of submission or to be placed under. But really, it's about this verb is about um, the c correct order of things and ordered stability and how that can benefit us. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, the point that's being made here is, is that there is ordered stability planned for uh, the future kingdom especially, but that, that Christians can opt into that ordered stability today. And that ordered stability starts with God the Father at the top and his son Jesus at his right hand as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, having all authority in heaven on earth that God could confer to him, like it says in Matthew 28. So, you know, when we think about us, you know, we are under God. We are under Christ. Christ is our Lord. He is our master. There is a, um, a great uh, love in that. There is a great freedom in that. And um, we can rejoice in that instead of fighting against that. Uh, there is no reason for us to fight against uh, that beautiful arrangement that God has where he has elevated Christ above all the powers and has seated him at his right hand. So we will continue to see more about this phrase, hupotasso, in future chapters, especially Ephesians chapter 5. It comes up several times, as Lynn Kohik mentioned. So, you know, we will circle back around to this concept, but I want uh, just to point out that here at the beginning, this initial usage of it here in the book of Ephesians is a very positive usage of the word. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. 
Let's continue to follow Jesus together.